Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. On a more human scale, what I mean by anti-capitalism is detangling our worth and our personal value and our sense of what is meaningful from that quest for more. So in your case, it might not be the quest for more and more and more money or stuff. It might be a quest for more productivity, more usefulness, more caregiving, more martyrdom, whatever it is. I think that even if you're not chasing more money endlessly, we're still caught in this capitalist system of believing that we should always be chasing more, even if it doesn't look like money. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Christy, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really psyched to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So um, I found out about your work because you wrote in, um, and uh, I think that there are a number of things about what you did that were really sort of relevant to the times we are living in, from sort of the, the work around activism to you know what you called self care, um, all of which we will get into. But before we get into that, I want to start by asking where in the world did you grow up, and how did where you grew up end up impacting the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I grew up in the Maryland suburbs of D.C. So I grew up close to a political town, but never really felt like I resonated with with what was happening in, in what was ostensibly my hometown. I still identify D.C. as kind of my, my hometown. And... And yet being there, you are, you're kind of drawn, whether you like it or not, into, into having a political opinion about things from a pretty young age. Because while neither of my parents were political, they didn't do anything related to the government or anything related to anything political, um, lots of my friends' parents did. And so you're, you're drawn immediately into having an opinion about big things in the world from a pretty young age. And so for me, growing up near DC was was formative because that's where the power holders were. And from a young age, I I recognized myself as someone in opposition to a lot of those power holders. But it also provided me an outlet for kind of practicing what would later become my belief system and and my identity as an activist. Mm. So I wasn't allowed to go to the WTO protests in Seattle in 1999 because I was 16 and I wasn't allowed to do things like that by myself. But I went to rallies in Lafayette Park and went to protests at the Chinese embassy around the occupation of Tibet and you know, was protesting police violence in the Clinton administration. Um, so to me, that was that really set the stage for for everything that was going to come was being in close proximity to to power in that particular way. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting that at such an early age, you not only formed strong opinions about things that you believed in, but you chose to take action on them. And you know, what it, what comes to mind for me is there's a, a movie that Michael Moore made called Where to Invade Next, where he goes around to different countries and he looks at various social policies, you know, and, and so his whole thing is, you know, I'm going to bring these ideas back to the United States. This is my invasion. And one of them, of course, was the one that, that really stood out to me was um, college tuition. He goes, I believe, to Estonia where college is free. And uh, the the thing that struck me was he actually said, you know, anytime in any of these other sort of westernized countries where, um, you know, politicians or, or anybody in power makes a tuition hike or tries to do anything like they tried to actually institute tuition in Estonia and the students took to the streets and they were having none of it. And then he flashes to a, um, you know, a scene that looked like the UCLA campus. And he said, you know what happens every time, you know, we have a tuition hike in America, which has been happening endlessly. And he just flashes to students sitting idly doing nothing. Mm 
uh, right. which is, is amazing because to me, I'm like, all right, if you want this to end, I'm like, every college student in this country should just stop going to class for a week and they have the power to organize that. And so what I wonder is, is why is it that you see so many people who have strong belief systems are so convicted about something yet do nothing about it? You know, I think a lot about this because I'm an organizer. And so I'm interested in kind of the mechanics of participation and and how we get people involved. And and really the way that we get people involved is kind of two ways. The first is to make organizing so enticing that people not only want to participate, but they want to come back. So for me, the way that I create an enticing organizing atmosphere is making sure that people feel super safe, really informed, empowered, and as though they are a, an important part of the process. So as an organizer, I try not to treat anybody like just another body in the street or another cog. Everyone there is really important. I build an organizing model around informed consent. So when you show up to an event that I've helped organize, you know what you're getting yourself into. You're going to be kept in the loop. Nobody is like keeping you in the dark about anything that's going to happen. And and you're empowered to make decisions based on that. But the other thing that I think holds people back from not participating is not feeling like they have a political home, not feeling like they have a group of people whom they trust, who are helping them to to shape a political future together. And that's one of the things that really inspired my move to the Bay Area was being growing up near DC, I I felt like there was a lot of access for me to participate, but I didn't feel like I had a political home there. And I kind of went out and got one for myself. I I went to college in San Francisco. That was the only way that my parents were going to let moving to San Francisco fly was I had to go to college. So I did that, but I immediately kind of got off campus and was looking around at like, who are the people who are doing interesting things here who share my belief system? And the people I met during college doing environmental activism, doing human rights work here in San Francisco they're still my best friends 15 years later. You know, we're in each other's weddings. We're each other's housemates. We, you know, when dinner parties were a thing, we would do that. Um, we, and and we're not just activists together, but we're really a family. And I think that that is, that's a real barrier for people when they don't know anyone else who's participating. They don't know who to trust. They don't know what's safe. They don't know what they're getting themselves into. And I think finding and developing that political home for yourself is is such a key part of of getting involved in anything because you don't want to feel like you're out there by yourself. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the the other question that raises for me is, you know, I think that and this isn't just, you know, isolated to uh, you know, political movements or activism, but uh, you know, if you remember like when the Parkland shooting happened, it, why is it that it takes sort of reaching, you know, sort of this boiling point before people are willing to take action on something that has been a problem long before that happened? Uh, and that, that's, you know, I kind of wonder that because it, it's funny, like it's also, you know, in life, people don't do anything until somehow they reach a crisis, right? It's like the person who has a heart attack suddenly decides, oh, you know, maybe I should start being healthier now. Yeah, I think... It's it's this is something I think about a lot because I quit drinking a year and a half ago and I and and people always expect there to be some sort of really horrific like rock bottom story where I woke up in a ditch and suddenly reevaluated my life and decided to stop drinking and the fact is like that wasn't the case for me I don't particularly need those rock bottom moments in order to decide to change my life. But I think that there is this common narrative that things have to reach an absolutely unendurable point before you're even allowed to pivot. And, you know, for instance, like drinking is such an accepted part of our culture that, God, if you if you don't have that crisis point, why on earth would you stop drinking? And for me, it's like, well, it just wasn't serving my life anymore. And it's 
doesn't make for a particularly compelling memoir, but that was my life. And I think that there is a very similar thing that happens politically where suddenly our collective eyes are opened and people are participating. People who haven't participated before are suddenly called to be in the streets, to participate, to donate money. And and I think that it's a similar phenomenon. And that's, that's one of the reasons why, for me, having a political home is such an important part of my activist practice is I don't have to because of because of that political home because of that group of people I don't have to chase every moment I don't have to devote myself to every cause equally I can kind of pick where I want to be and buckle down and do the work and and not worry that every time there's a crisis I have to be the person on the front lines I know that I don't have to do it all yeah. It kind of keeps me grounded and a little bit more centered. But if you don't have that, I think you may end up kind of chasing those moments instead of build doing the deeper building work. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the other part of this is you, you mentioned the word informed consent. And, uh, you know, that struck me in particular because at this point, you know, we have anything but consent. Like we, we live in such a divisive um, world. And at the same time, you know, there's no way in my mind that we can actually make progress and find, um, you know, sort of the best sort of version of who we could be without the ability to, you know, talk to people that we know we disagree with, um, engage with people who have different opinions than us, you know, particularly as somebody who has the background that you do. How do you, how do you build that bridge between, you know, people with wildly different beliefs, because I think that one of the things that we we overlook in my mind is context, right? Like the the way the media portrays it is like every person who ever votes for Trump is basically a racist white redneck. And I think that if you actually look closer at circumstance and, and situation, that's not in t- like on the surface, that might seem to be the case, but it's not entirely true. I think that, you know, it's easy to come to that conclusion without doing, you know, any digging. And as you probably imagine, you could probably know exactly where my, my politics fall, given that I went to Berkeley, I, you know, I like live in the Bay Area. But at the same time, I think that, you know, one thing that I've been very mindful of is, you know, looking at the books that I read and also seeking out viewpoints that I know I will disagree with. Well, I would say that I spend more of my energy activating the people who agree with me but who aren't taking action yet to me that is that is a better use of our or more efficient use of our time and energy than arguing with your racist uncle at thanksgiving like because you're probably not going to change that person's mind um i think what i always try to remember is to kind of leave the door open where no one is irredeemable you're allowed to believe whatever you want. And and at the end of the day, you're also allowed to change your mind. And so no one is irredeemable. If folks decide to join whatever it is that I'm doing, that's amazing and fantastic. And at the same time, my, my role in the movement is not building those bridges. My role in the movement is upskilling the people who agree but are maybe intimidated to participate or are looking to take on more risk or are looking to become a part of something more meaningful than what they've already been doing than like phone banking from their house, for instance. And that's kind of my role is, is playing um, is, is almost playing kind of hostess and educator for the folks who are agree and are looking for more. And, and I'm, again, I've lived in the Bay Area since college. I, I don't have a ton of people in my life who like virulently disagree with what I believe. Um, I, I came from a fairly progressive family. And so to me, to me, my energy is, is on those folks who, who were kind of like the people you were describing earlier where they really believe in these things, but they don't know where to start and they don't know how to participate. 
Well, so there's a, another component of this that, you know, I, I wonder about, which is, you know, we know that we have these problems. We've had them for decades. Most of them are not news to anybody. Many of these, you could, things that have happened in the last year or two, you could have predicted, you know, 10 years ago. And I mean, even, you know, I, I always harp on the student loans because it's a problem I have myself, but I'm like, okay, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out you can only keep lending money out for so long and not getting it back until there are systemic consequences. Um, you know, I mean, it's like, I don't need to be the treasury secretary to figure that out. And I was a C minus economics student. Um, so I guess the, the thing that I wonder is why, despite knowing that we have all of these problems is the actual process of change, something that takes so damn long. Like why do we have to create so much suffering in order to, finally get people to wake up and, and you know like because I, here's what i think about you know power brokers that you speak of like nasim Taleb, you know wrote this amazing book called skin in the game and he actually points out to what he calls the, the robert rubin problem which is like you know treasury secretary is making policy that has no impact on that him, his life or anybody surrounding him you know so they don't have, really have skin in the game like they're making policies that affect people um but they themselves don't deal with the consequences of any of that yeah, I think the widest change takes so long. It's like if I could honestly answer that question, I you know, would have stopped climate change by now and would have ended police violence and all of these things. Like it's it's such a big question and for me, I think a big piece of it is that we spend so much time I think kind of picking at the surface of of the problems and we don't get deep and we don't look at what is the root of all of this. And, and so for instance, you know, you look at climate change and it's taking shorter showers and using different light bulbs. And the fact is the UK guardian reports that a hundred corporations contribute 71% of carbon emissions. So like my light bulbs, don't matter in the grand scheme of things. But we're kept busy doing all of these little cosmetic changes instead of really getting to the root of things and holding accountable the people and the corporations who should be held accountable and really holding their feet to the fire in a meaningful way instead of kind of nibbling around the edges, which if you try to nibble around the edges, it's going to take you a whole lot longer to eat the pizza. Yeah. Um you know, so we're, we're as as we were talking about before we hit record in sort of one of the most unusual times in history, something that probably you and I both never thought we'd see in our lifetime. And you were just telling me that you're having to tell a three-year-old uh, that he couldn't go outside if the air was good, or he's asking if he could go outside. Right. Uh, you know, and, and this is probably yet another question that doesn't really have an answer. But, uh, you know, I, I think like deep down, as much as I wanted to not believe in such a pessimistic viewpoint, I just couldn't shake this sense that like, as I was watching things unfold over the last probably five or six years, I'm like, are we moving towards a point of massive civil unrest? And I think we're now at that point uh, to some degree. I think the only thing that's really kind of kept it in check is the fact that we're all quarantined and, and you know, stuck <laughs> in our houses. Um, but Put a damper the, on my political participation for sure. Yeah. Well, so, so what I, I mean, so this is like a big question. I realized, you know, I'm basically asking you to solve all the world's problems, but how do you get out of a mess that is of a scale that's this big? Um, you know, it, it, that's, that's, you know, one component of this question and I think the other thing that I always wonder about now, I think obviously about a lot of things through the lens of media as a media creator. And from your vantage point, what do you think uh, is my responsibility as a media creator? What do you think the overall general media's responsibilities? Because the thing is that, you know, yes, we don't have, you know, the CNN level audiences that, you know, like sort of an Anderson Cooper does or, you know, but but the thing is we, you know, individually are all, you know, given a sort of a platform and a microphone. And in a lot of ways, we are our own media company. So I, I wonder, what do you think is the responsibility of people who create media? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I think my responsibility is as, as a content creator. And, you know, I have this conversation, not just with myself in, in my own individual work, but also in the collective work that I do is like, what is our role here? And and for me, I would say for the last 10 years or so, 
the answer to that question is getting people to stretch their imaginations to imagine something that is not just back to normal, that is not just status quo, but that is so spectacularly beautiful and liberating and empowering that again, it's irresistible. And so I think about this a lot with with the the uprisings that have been taking place this past summer around racial violence and police violence in our country is we now have a whole bunch of new people who are imagining a world without police. And when we stretch our imaginations beyond what we used to think was possible or what we intellectually thought was probable to like, what do we really want? Not just like, what's the most feasible, logical solution? But if you had like your wildest dreams to imagine a political future for ourselves collectively, what would that look like? And and really encouraging people to, to stretch into believing in that. And so for me, I'm my kind of genre for the last 10 or 15 years in activism has been climate justice and indigenous rights. And and for us, our, our approach has been pushing this conversation to the left so that we're kind of dragging the mainstream along with us. And, and we're creating kind of a new left flank over and over again of connecting climate with capitalism, connecting climate with human rights and and starting to make these connections in a way that we're asking people not just to imagine more fuel efficient cars because that's not really that exciting at least that's not that exciting to me it's about reimagining an entirely new future for ourselves hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Hmm. You know, so... Uh... You know, you alluded to the fact that on your website, uh, it very clearly says anti-capitalist. And I think there's an interesting um, paradox at play because you live in, you know, arguably what is the, at this point in time, one of the hotbeds of, you know, wealth, uh, which is the Bay Area. So I I guess what I want to understand is, you know, what do you mean by by anti-capitalism? Because I agree that, you know, there's no no way we can continue, you know, to thrive in a system where so many people have so much and so many, like a handful of people have so much and so many others have so little. And I think the Bay Area is like you know, almost a microcosm of the world at large, uh, having, you know, grown up there. Because I, I remember even looking at the place that I used to live with a roommate in in San Francisco and thinking, I was like, we used to pay $1,500 for this place and now it goes for 4000 a month. And oh, easily, easily. So, uh, you know, I mean, that is, let, let's just get into that whole idea of anti-capitalism, because obviously you need money to live. And the the interesting thing is, is that money is really in a lot of ways how we as a culture, unfortunately, measure status and success. It's sort of the pinnacle of achievement. It's the goal that everybody has is more, you know, I mean, all you have to do is, you know, go through the self-help section of a bookstore or even go on Amazon. It's like six figures in six weeks type of thing. Uh, so yeah, I mean, so where, where does the anti-capitalism fit into all this? So for me, anti-capitalism is a political framework that I kind of apply to everything. It's, it's the lens through which I see the world, truly, in terms of what needs to shift. And so yes, in terms of money, What I mean by anti-capitalism is ending the ceaseless chase of more, the nonstop accumulation of stuff and wealth. And on a large scale, I think that looks like mass wealth redistribution and, frankly, reparations for Black and Indigenous people here in the U.S. Uh, Your mileage may vary if you're outside of the U.S., Um, but on a more human scale, what I mean by anti-capitalism is detangling our worth and our personal value and our sense of what is meaningful from that quest for more. So in your case, it might not be the quest for more and more and more money or stuff. It might be a quest for more productivity, more usefulness, more caregiving, more martyrdom, whatever it is. I think that even if you're not chasing more money endlessly, we're still caught in this capitalist system of believing that we should always be chasing more, even if it doesn't look like money. It could look like busyness for you, but Mm -hmm. that's still a capitalist value where you are providing value and profitability to the capitalist system. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's it's funny because that's that's probably a perfect segue to talk about you know why I had to reschedule because I think I remember I emailed you and I said, you know, I realized this and I, I was sick or something. And you're like, okay, you know, uh, me of all people, I can't tell you not to reschedule an interview given that I talk about self-care. So I think that that makes a perfect segue to this whole idea of, of self-care because you're right. I think that, you know, my roommate has been sort of doing a deep dive into all things sort of, you know, digital wellness. And, you know, what we're finding is that, wow, yeah, you're, there's no question. You're right. For me, that absolutely is more productivity, more creative output. I mean, hell, I just finished writing a 6,000 word, you know, article on the process of maximizing creative output. Um, and so it, it's, you know, 
but it, what I want to understand is sort of the role of self care and, and how we define it. Because you know, to your point, even like you said, it's like you know, more time in the gym could put, be put into that category. You know, it's like more weight loss, all of that. You know, so where is that sort of balance of self care in the pursuit of more? Because even self care could you know put you down the same sort of put you back on the same treadmill that you're talking about. And that's why I'm very clear on my website that what I'm talking about when I talk about self-care is something that is sustainable and and has an anti-capitalist framework. Anti-capitalism doesn't mean that I'm not selling things on my website or compensating myself for my own labor. What it means is that it's not all about more and more and more. So one of the things that I saw when I kind of got into the self-care world and and I came to self-care when I was I was at kind of a crossroads of dealing with severe scoliosis and severe depression and pretty severe PTSD. And what I the trap that I initially fell into was what I call capitalist self-care, which is like going to all the yoga classes, meditating twice a day, eating quote unquote really clean, which is a like wellness industrial complex way to sell us like vegetables that you can grow in your own garden um in in a way to maximize profit and and I fell into this trap of doing doing all of the self care the way that I had fallen into a trap of trying to be everything to everyone in my activism and and it had the same kind of harmful effects of burnout and overwhelm and this gnawing feeling in the middle of the night that I'm worthless because I didn't I, I didn't do everything that was on my self-care to-do list and and I exhausted myself with my own self-care and realized that I really needed to be a part of shifting that conversation. And so what I know about myself is that I have the tendency to overwork. I am a classic people pleaser. I will happily chain myself to a tree for any cause you put in front of me and and kind of sacrifice myself for that. And so for me, a lot of times what self-care looks like is like just lying down and not doing anything. Like, and so I challenge myself and like, how not useful can I be? How like inconvenient can I be? And yeah. and it's not at the expense of everyone around me, but it's from this place of interrupting what capitalism has taught me about my worth. Mm. Yeah. I guess, you know, what do you think capitalism has taught sort of other people about their own worth and, and kind of how do, how do you uncouple that? Because I think it's, it's this is something that I, I run across frequently and, and something that comes up with almost everybody I talk to is I think there's, you know, a difference between uh, intellectually understanding it and then really doing something about it. Because if, you know, we were able to act on everything we intellectually understood, every person who takes an online course would come out of it having done every damn module in the course and getting outstanding results. But that's not the case. It's definitely not the case. Um, you know, I think it really, it's a very individual and it's a very personal thing. And it really does involve, again, getting to the root of how a lot of us were raised. And, and what a lot of us were taught from very young ages about how the world works, how power works, how value works. You know, I, I have a three-year-old and one of the ways that I am practicing my political imagination while I'm stuck at home is I'm imagining raising a child who did not experience punishment or reward or authoritarianism growing up. So we don't use rewards. We don't use punishment. And because I said so is like not a valid answer in our house. So, and, and in, in watching this play out with him, I really see the ways that quite accidentally, like through no malice, because my parents are not malicious people. They're wonderful human beings. But through like no fault of their own, I still internalized so much of that growing up that the way to be a pleasing person was to please others. 
to perform, to behave, to be palatable. And so really investigating like what the root of that is for you. And and frankly, I wouldn't have done all of this without quite a bit of therapy. So I heartily recommend that <laughs> as part of your practice. But but it's really looking at like where did this come from? Where did this belief come from? And and for me, I'm like rewiring myself neurologically to be less useful, to mm. be less compliant, all of these things. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny because you brought up sort of, you know, the meditation, the wellness, like, it, and it just makes me think many of the guests we've had here on Unmistakable Creative are the ones who talk about those very things, you know, um, and the benefits of them. Which that's what, you know, I wonder about it is, okay, like, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Like, there's a sort of, you know, uh, self-loathing that occurs when you're like, oh, I can't follow through on my daily routine. I know because I teach this stuff. Like, this is what I teach to the community that I'm in, um, you know, where we're talking about how to make ideas happen and the role that, you know, all of these things play. Uh, and yet, I think you're offering a, a counter narrative. So what I wonder is, you know, how you take this is where I think I'm going with this is that how do you take what works for you and discard what doesn't? Because I think that the sort of tendency that people have, particularly when it comes to authority figures uh, or you know people who are quote unquote experts, is to treat everything they say as gospel rather than guidance. And I see this over and over and over, um, particularly like when it comes to sort of the online world of people who hire coaches and that kind of thing, where they just they take somebody's word and they're like, oh, this person does this and I am going to follow this religiously. Yeah. I mean, I see this all the time. I I was a yoga teacher for a bunch of years and and I certainly have a meditation practice. Okay. I'm a practicing Buddhist and I do my readings and I do my meditations and it's enormously useful to me. The point where I think we run into trouble is where we weaponize those things against ourselves. So when we don't do those, or if we sit down and meditate and can't quiet our mind, then that creates a story about ourselves where we are suddenly wrong or bad or unworthy or whatever it is. So it's not that the practices themselves are the problem. The, pra- the problem arises when we create a whole new story using those practices as the as the kind of weaponizing force inside of that. So I I also don't want to say like don't meditate because if yeah. meditation works for you, awesome. I but I do think that there is a a filter that we need to start applying for ourselves, which is like what is the effect of this? And it's for me, it's been one of the most useful parts of meditation is learning to observe things and to see the the kind of residue that things leave behind. So for me, endlessly scrolling Instagram leaves behind a residue that I need to go out and buy a whole bunch of shit that I don't actually need because if only I had that yoga mat, then my yoga practice would suddenly be something completely elevated and different. And the fact is, it won't. Um, I've been practicing yoga again for like 20 years. My yoga practice is basically my yoga practice at this point. Um, that's that's where we've arrived. <laughs> and, and it's fine. But I do think that we get confused of endlessly consuming this content, endlessly consuming this advice, these suggestions. And then again, taking all of that as gospel and not putting that through the filter of our own lived experience and our own lives and our own beliefs. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's that that's absolutely true. It's something that I, like I said, I see um, over and over. So it, it, there's one thing I want to go back to you said about you know uh, no rewards, no punishments, you know, sort of no authoritarianism or whatever it is. I mean, I think any one of us who grew up in you know the era that we did had you know parents who very clearly established some semblance of authority and there was discipline. Uh, right. So what I wonder is in the context of something like you know. A kid who's gone off the rails, who's just like, you know, doing drugs at home or whatever it is, or like, you know, causing serious problems that have, you know, consequences that potentially are reversible. You know, how does how do you have how do you deal with things like that with this approach? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not the parent of a teenager yet. So like all of this could come back to bite me in the ass for sure. But again, I would really invite you to look at like, what are the root causes that are creating that? And for me, as someone who used to be a teenager and used to consume drugs and used to engage in all kinds of self-destructive behavior, the thing that was missing for me was connection. And what I know for my three-year-old is that if he's off the rails, it's because there needs to be more connection happening. And it's not always a quick fix in the moment, but it's something that where I can look at total meltdown tantrum and go, okay, tomorrow I'm going to need to bake in some like real connection time where my phone is away. I'm not thinking about anything else. We're on the floor playing trains in order to create more of this felt sense of connection. Because that's all we're, that's all any of us is looking for. And any like off the rails behavior is really just looking for connection and safety and begging anyone who will pay attention to us for some compassion. Yeah. So this is, this is a personal question out of morbid curiosity. So I think in a lot of ways, self-care for many people has kind of gone, you know, off the rails in, in the midst of COVID. I mean, it's, you know, drinking more than you normally do. I mean, I, as an avid snowboarder, basically my, you know, sort of exercise routine went to hell uh, once the, this pandemic hit, because the one thing I love to do, the one form of exercise, you know, kind of is no longer an option. And, uh, you know, we, we got to the point where we noticed that our habits were getting really bad, where we were like eating poorly, you know, a lot of things, particularly the, like it just, you know, it, all of it just became an excuse to engage in, in, you know, behavior that has, you know, like long-term, you know, downsides. And, in the context of what we're dealing with now, when people are stuck at home, you know, I'm lucky because I live somewhere where the weather isn't atrocious. But um, how do how do we navigate this now? Like, you know, particularly when you got you know just news coming at you all day long that's kind of crazy and insane, um, and yet your primary connection, to your point, to the outside world is often the internet. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, I just want to acknowledge that. This is an incredibly challenging moment. And while I'm not going to endorse any particular like behavior that you find self-destructive, like I, I do want to kind of pause and give us this moment of grace of like maybe we don't have to hold ourselves to like the same standards as before. Um, my my kid was home from daycare for three, three and a half months. Like my self-care did not look the same with no childcare as it looks with childcare. That's just like the reality of my lived experience. That being said, I think we are maybe at a place now where we can start reimagining what that self-care looks like for us. And being a little bit creative or inventive about how do we bring some of those things that used to be working for us back in and kind of reintegrating them? So for me, having a movement practice is essential. Again, I live with scoliosis. If I don't move, my joints turn to concrete. It's like a sad time. Um, And so for me, it's being really creative about, okay, how am I moving my body today? What's the plan? And and having something built in where i know what i'm i know what the plan is i know what i'm doing i'm not building it from scratch every single day so so having some kind of framework around it of this is where we're going with all of this when it comes to human connection i mean again scrolling the internet endlessly doesn't make me feel good it it, it harms my mental health, and so I try not to do it um, more than I more than I need to. And yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was refreshing the news a whole lot until suddenly I was like, "Okay, this isn't this isn't working. We're going to dial this back." And and at the same time, I now have way more connection. And my son has way more connection with my parents because we do video calls now. Like that hadn't occurred to us pre-pandemic somehow, but now we do it all the time. And and so figuring out 
okay, we're living in this new world, at least for the foreseeable. And so what are we going to make of this? And and how could we honestly use this as an opportunity to create connection in different ways? So I think what I really appreciate uh, about your uh, you know, message around this is that it challenges so many of the conventions of, of you know, personal development literature and, and sort of what is effectively the, you know, ethos of personal development, which is more, you know, like the right. Tony Robbins thing of constant and never ending improvement. Uh, <sighs> you know, I mean, you know, you, you think about that. And I, I remember because I, I, you know, started to come to this realization that, uh, you know, I had a guest here who once said, you know, like when you have any one thing that, you know, sort of determines your happiness or well-being, it's, you know, basically like betting your entire life on on one sort of risky stock as opposed to having, you know, what she called a diversified portfolio of meaning. And yet, you know, most of this flies in the face of, of that diversity. And it, it's, you know, like I said, constant, never ending improvement. Whereas in my mind, I'm like, what we should be aiming for is constant and never ending awareness. Yes. I shake my fist at constant and never-ending improvement. I mean, first of all, it doesn't account for the fact that, and this is my like buzzkill Buddhist side, but like all of us are going to get old and die. Like there, at the end of things, like there is no constant and never-ending improvement. It's just a, it's an impossibility um, for most of us who want to live um, a long and hopefully at some point elderly life. Like. Our, our bodies are imperfect and they break down and that's the reality of being human. So how can you embrace that and, and let yourself off the hook for a whole lot of the other things? Yeah. So actually you may be the person to finally answer this question for me that um, I have been wrestling with. And it's funny because I'm interviewing a, a scientist who wrote a book called the molecule of more, which is all about dopamine. Um, but the one thing that I, you know, we know is we need ambition. To, to some degree, right? Uh, my roommate said, you know, any good society is driven by some level of self-interest because if we didn't have self-interest, people wouldn't start companies, people wouldn't make art, people wouldn't do anything potentially with no self-interest involved. Um, but I think also we're seeing what happens when you maximize self-interest to the point of diminishing returns. So I guess, you know, given sort of the nature of, of your experience and your view on the world, how do you find this balance or this coexistence with, you know, a, a fulfillment and ambition? You know, it's it's super challenging because I like I'm that person where I, I think when I initially wrote to you, I was like, I don't have a book to promote or anything like that. And of course, like a month later, I was like, I'm going to write a book in the middle of a pandemic with a three year old. Like, so I I'm all about like, yes, anti-capitalist self-care. And also, like, for me, part of my self-care, part of my what makes me feel good in the world is creating things. I, and, and I create all sorts of things, you know, I knit my own sweaters and I create online courses and I made a kid who's pretty great. And now I'm writing this book proposal and eventually a book. And, and for me, it is, it's always an act of kind of faith, but also this act of, imagining something in the world that wasn't there before. And I think that's an incredibly human thing. I think legacy is a one of the really beautiful things about being human, is leaving something behind and leaving your mark and impacting the people around you, even if it is just your own little nuclear family. Um, but But leaving something behind that's meaningful. And I think that's what gets a lot of us out of the bed, out of bed in the morning. For me, it's it's also, you know, imagining a world that is cleaner and safer and more just and where we all live in collective liberation and that's also an act of creation and imagination too. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's one of those um, things that I think Ryan Holiday had a really interesting way of saying this. He said, you know, like, we have this idea that there's this next level. And, uh, you know, he said, yeah, that's good. Because he said, you know, if nobody, uh, like, you know, every, if everybody just wanted to be senator, nobody would run for president. And he said, so on, you know, the individual or, you know, on the individual level, 
uh, it's good because it drives a lot of accomplishment. But he said on the aggregate, it's a lie. And you know what people find often is that they what they've been doing is chasing false horizons. Um, right. I think that each accomplishment you kind of think is like, oh, this is going to be the one. When when this happens, you know, I'll, I'll finally feel whole and complete. And you always realize that there's is something more. Because I remember um, Josh Ratner, uh, uh, the guy from How I Met Your Mother, actually said he's like a successful career in the arts is rigged for dissatisfaction. And he said, if you don't have something else that grounds you outside of your accomplishments, it's like a really, really uh, mental roller coaster ride. Yeah, I mean, there's so much rejection. There's so much uncertainty and. And at the same time, I think we see that as kind of a uniquely creative problem. And the fact is, like, that's just being human. We we think we think that there is certainty in anything, and there truly isn't. And it's again, this is like my Buddhist buzzkill side. Um, but when you, I, to me, when you embrace that, that like nothing is promised and nothing is certain that's when I do my most creative work. Cause I'm like, I don't care what people think. If nothing is promised and nothing is certain, then I'm going to get to work creating the thing I want to create. And like everybody else can deal with it. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate that more than you can possibly imagine, because I think that there is this <clears throat> sort of, you know, huge attachment to outcomes that, you know, prevents people from actually getting started with anything in the first place. Right this has been really really kind of uh interesting I, I love conversations like this because they just they they make you think they expand your perspective um and I, i've really enjoyed talking to you so i have one final question for you which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable to me what makes something or someone unmistakable is to me it comes down to clarity and courage it's being really crystal clear about your perspective and and the lens through which you are approaching the world and then the courage to carry that out. And I think in concert, th- those to me are the qualities of what makes something unmistakable. And, and to me, I can spot them a mile away because when someone is unclear or is, is hiding, you can, you can see that. Um, you can see that too. And so that's, those to me are the, the things that I try to cultivate. Amazing. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your uh, wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work and everything that you're up to? Sure. You can find me at christytending.com and I'm on Instagram at christytending. I'm pretty much everywhere on the internet at christytending. So. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.